Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, March 15th. We begin with a discussion surrounding the new Safe and Inclusive Access Bylaw, specifically how it will impact Calgary's queer community. We get the thoughts of Anna Murphy, Vice Chair of the Calgary Social Wellbeing Advisory Committee and an LGBTQ2S plus community advocate. How safe are Canadian banks and what would happen to your money if your financial institution went under? We get some insight from Olaf Weber, Senior Fellow at the Centre for International Governance. And finally, it's an emerging issue for law enforcement officials, crimes involving so-called ghost guns. We speak with Doug King, professor of criminology from Mount Royal University, who explains exactly how these unique firearms are made and what can be done to combat this new breed of weapons. The Safe and Inclusive Access Bylaw passed 10-5 in Council yesterday, a bylaw that City Council says aims to strike a balance between the right to protest and the right for personal safety and inclusivity. Joining us now is Anna Murphy, the Vice Chair of the Social Wellbeing Advisory Committee and an LGBTQ2S plus community advocate as well as an activist. Good morning to you, Anna. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning, Sue and Andy, and good morning, Calgary. Appreciate your time. The mayor saying yesterday it's important for council to send a message as cities around the world struggle with extreme polarization and threats of violence against some communities. Do you think this bylaw is a good start, Anna? Is this Are we heading in the right direction with this? Absolutely. You know, yesterday we saw council recognize their ability to truly be change makers within our community. And what we ultimately saw was them taking a measured and thoughtful action to maintain uh, safe and inclusive neighborhoods within Calgary for all of those, quite frankly, who call our city their home, but especially those equity-deserving groups and with administration working tirelessly to respond swiftly given the sheer gravity and urgency of the situation that is before us as a community, but echoing what what Mayor uh, said is that this is a global issue. This is not unique to Calgary. And so we moved as, as a city as a community to bring a sound and defendable argument which was carefully thought through there's intentional wording within it and it ensures to strike that balance and ultimately resulting in what is a crisp clear and enforceable piece of policy which the majority of council uh, supported and passed 10 to 5. Mm-hmm. And and what are you hearing uh, you know in response to this announcement from the queer community any feedback at this point? Last night I received an email from a very good friend of mine and a, a also someone who is a leader within not only the city of Calgary, but quite frankly across Canada. And they were so thankful to see Mayor and the majority of council put their allyship into action. They It, it, it was a bit of a sigh of relief that there is yet another tool in the toolbox that we can use to ensure that the true spirit and energy of Calgary is being reflected in our neighbourhoods. And Anna, I don't think you have to be a member of the LGBTQ plus community to appreciate the fact that, you know, it's important that, yes, we have the right to protest in this country and, and it's a wonderful right that we have, but also uh, people have the right to be safe, to go to an event, a family friendly event with their children and not be terrorized. So I think it's, you know, I think it feels like they've struck a pretty good balance here in allowing both of those things to happen. 
Absolutely, Sue. So this bylaw in no way uh, seeks to regulate the activity of protest. In fact, again, it goes back to striking that balance between ensuring that a charter-protected right is, is folks are still able to go out and protest and you know use their voice but what this does say is that you know back up a little bit essentially if i can echo uh, i believe councillor Meehan said that and it's, it's it's the best way to describe it back up a little bit so that calgarians can go into whether it is their library or their recreation center or or any otherwise defined public space as is outlined within this bylaw and they can do so without being under the threat of intimidation and just you know speaking to that point about yes you don't have to be uh, just a member of the 2s lgbtqia plus community because the reality is is that while currently these demonstrations are focused upon gender and sexually diverse calgarians who is to say that tomorrow it's not jewish calgarians mm-hmm. women of color indigenous persons hate is hate period do you believe, and from what you know about the uh, safe and inclusive access bylaw, do you believe it, it goes far enough, or would you like to see, you know, other aspects within the bylaw? I would say that this bylaw goes as far as we, as, as far as we're able to at this time. However, with that being said, an amendment was introduced, which will see administration report back to council in a month. So in April, they will come back to the regular meeting of council, and this will help both council administration and, quite frankly, Calgarians understand why this bylaw was needed, how this bylaw is being used, and why it was needed right now. Anna, do you know, because I'm not sure if there are any other municipalities, any other cities that have a a, a bylaw like this that's as tough as this to try and put an end to what's been going on, particularly here in the city of Calgary. Are there other places that you've heard of that are, you know, trying to really kind of make these rules stand up as well? This is a first in Canada um, piece piece of legislation that we have brought forward. And there are many things that we do here in Calgary that are a first of or that we need to be proud of. This is not something that we should, that the fact that the uh, situation has become so urgent and so dire within our neighborhoods that council and administration needs to act, quite frankly, recognizing the consequences of their inaction it is, it is, it is a bold first move in Canada and it does now open the, the conversation to how we might engage our community building partners both at a provincial and federal level about what other mechanisms may need to be used because again, this problem is not unique to Calgary. It is that global issue that Mayor Gondek spoke about and quite frankly for, for folks like me and so, so many other remarkable leaders within this space, we have been, you know, talking about you know this is on the horizon and if we don't pay attention it is going to get worse mm-hmm. and so now it it here we are here we are in this situation and so calgary recognized the urgency and brought forward those thoughtful measured actions forward this is not saying you can't go out and protest but it is saying that you have to put some distance between you and everyday Calgarians that, quite frankly, have a right to not be under threat of intimidation, fear, terrorization, or otherwise harassment.
Thanks for your insight, Anna. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sue and Andy. That is Anna Murphy, Vice Chair of the City of Calgary Social Wellbeing Advisory Committee and a Calgary LGBTQ SBTQ 2S plus, I'll never get that right, uh, and a community advocate and advocate uh, activist. Money in the bank. It's a phrase that conveys security. But what happens when the banks fail? That's a question that was brought home last week when U.S. authorities shut down California-based Silicon Valley Bank, otherwise known as SVB. Joining us now to discuss is Olaf Weber, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance. Good morning to you, Olaf. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Now, hearing this news, Olaf, uh, makes us think about our banks, where we put our money, where we put our trust. Do Canadians really have to ask if their money is safe? Um, I don't think so. So, um, first, um, the Canadian banking system is very highly regulated, much more regulated than the than the U.S. banking system. So, and they ha- they can take much less risk than than U.S. banks. So, less things can happen there. And the second one, a second question uh, issue is that the bank in the Silicon Valley Bank was very specialized on on tech. Uh, companies and so it's a it's a smaller specialized bank and not a global or conventional bank uh, how we know it and then thirdly um, um, if something happens there's there's the Canadian Deposit Insurance Corporation as well that 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 endures a, a certain amount of the money so to be honest I wouldn't be afraid about uh, about losing any money with Canadian banks currently. Olaf, have we even had in recent memory a bank failure in Canada? Um, there was no failure, no. There was no no payout. And even in the 2008 financial crisis, Canadian banks were exceptionally well doing at that time. So many, even in the U.S., you know, many clients changed from U.S. banks to Canadian banks, and that uh, because they uh, they were safer. Uh, than uh, than the U.S. banks, even in in times of of crisis like the 2008 financial crisis. Olaf, it seems like this is the time of the year, and over the past couple of weeks we've had earnings reports come in from the major banks, and it's kind of astounding how much money these banks make. Uh, So I'm wondering, do we rely on the big banks, or a lot of folks, I know here in Alberta, like to do credit unions. Are all banks under the same umbrella? Do I have to go with one of the major banks to feel safe, or can I go with a credit union or some of these smaller or online offshoots? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Not at all. So, so, so the big banks that we know, and there's a list of these banks, they have a federal uh, deposit insurance, and so these these are that one hundred thousand per account and so forth. There's some details, and then you have in addition to that, credit unions are usually regulated by uh, by by provinces, and so there's a provincial uh, insurance uh, as well. And especially in Alberta, you are happy because they endure the full amount of the money that you have at the credit union. In other other provinces, it's, it's also 100,000 or 250,000, depends on the province. But Alberta, uh, in Alberta, is the full amount is endured. So you are in a, in a great situation. So overall, it's not really something that we, we need to be concerned about. We can watch the news across the border and think that our money, for the most part, should be pretty safe if we're in a Canadian bank. Yes, I, I think so. So I don't see any anything similar happening to one of the, the big Canadian banks or the 
or the or the or the credit unions. Of course, and overall, it's it's a situation now with in, you know, higher interest rates and with a, with a kind of uh, uh, downwards um, uh, phases for for the tech industry that is not nice. But I don't don't see any any direct um, impact for. Uh, savings accounts or for your RRSP or, so, or something similar. It's good to know that we're not tied to the U.S. Uh, you know when it comes to the banks and and our safety. But I'm wondering if 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 uh, this is a, a fair question for you all off. If you have some insight for us, we talk a lot about inflation and how we're kind of tied to the moves that happen down to the south. Uh, how important is it that we see inflation being you know quashed in the U.S. to have some relief here, or can we find relief when it comes to the high inflation we're witness to on our own? Um, yeah, you know, inflation, it's, it's a global problem currently. We know that and there are different reasons um, for that. And, of course, the inflation was one of the reasons also why, why the, the Silicon Valley Bank um, went illiquid, because they, they owned bonds, and, and currently with a high interest rate, if you sell bonds that are older, then, then you get less money than you have expected. So that's a general risk, of course. If you have high inflation, there's, you know, you have higher costs in your daily life, but there's also there are also things happening uh, in banks. So, but that's something the Bank of Canada also want, also addresses, you know, to to, uh, to increase interest rates to um, uh, to decrease the rate of inflation. In general, it's not good to have high inflation. Of course, that's not a good situation. I feel a little bit better about my money now, Olaf. Thanks so much for your time this morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Olaf Weber, a senior fellow at the Center for International Governance. For the last three years, Alberta Police Services have been grappling with a new trend in illegal firearms. The surge in guns built using privately manufactured or smuggled parts that make them untraceable. Ghost guns are something our next guest, criminology, uh, criminology professor Doug King, has become familiar with. And he's going to discuss it with us this morning. Good morning to you, Doug. Good morning. Can you give us your definition and overview of a ghost gun and, and how this whole thing comes together? Mm-hmm. You know, there are uh, there are different kind of categories of ghost guns. The one that I think gets most of the uh, kind of media attention is the notion of 3D printing guns, where an individual can download from the Internet a software uh, package that will print off different parts of a gun, and then they... Um, Put the guns together themselves. They're highly durable. They're they're basically made out of a polymer and things like that. Um, they last a long time. They're more than one one shot weapons now. And uh, you can also uh, get weapons that are kind of uh, cobbled together, put together by um, you know different parts from different guns that are being uh, then put together and manufactured that way. But I think the one that people are most concerned about is the 3D weapon growth. I would say so. I mean, it, it seems like you can pretty much manufacture those anywhere you want. So how does law enforcement even attempt to keep up with something like that? I mean, Doug, you're obviously, you're a professor at Mount Royal University, so you've heard the Calgary police chief himself talking about how that's become a problem here in our city. How can police even keep up with something that you can make at home? You know, I think first of all, I think we have to put into context how much of it is happening. I do think that we're on the uh, the beginning of the the trend, and certainly it's going to be going up. Uh, you know, the Calgary Police Service is reporting that they seized about 15 3D weapons last year. Um, so that, that's a that's a significant number, but it's relatively small in terms of the number of illegal firearms mm-hmm. that CPS would 
uh, uh, obtain in any given year. It's about five, ten percent of the number. The, the challenge, though, is because uh, it's uh, manufactured downloading. It's not coming across the border. It's being downloaded through the internet. Is there's not much that can be done at the front end to stop it from happening. It's always going to, it's going to have to end up to be um, good old-fashioned police work, which is setting up sting operations, detecting, uh, and then once they can uh, locate uh, the manufacturers, then go in and apply the criminal code of Canada at that point. And technology is, is really a kind of uh, at issue here. Uh, there was a trend many years ago, for example, to use uh, inkjet printers to um, uh, photocopy currency. And there was uh, uh, software packages that were put into inkjet printers that would make that uh, not, the, the bills come out very fuzzy, fuzzy now. So maybe there's technology mm. that can be built into these printers, but that's going to take a while to get, get going. Speaking with Doug King, criminology professor at Mount Royal University, and uh, Professor King, when I know that it's new, this is a new process. We're calling them ghost guns. You either hobble together or 3D printed. Do we know who is using this technology or using these different parts to build uh, build these guns? Is this highly organized within gangs or are these yeah. individuals? Uh, what do we know? I think at, at this stage, I think you can assume that it's largely individuals that are doing it. Um, I, but, uh, you know, if there is money to be made... Hmm. Now, you know that organized crime and criminal organizations are not going to get behind it. Um, you know, it's true of everything, in, you know, smuggling in illegal weapons from the United States, uh, you know, prostitution, drugs, all those things. If there's money to be made, organized crime is going to gravitate to it. So I think we're just starting to see that emphasis. And the province is certainly uh, uh, seeing that beginning of let's organize around a suppression unit related to illegal firearms and organized crime uh, just to stay on top of the trend. Doug, it's a, an ongoing issue. We'll certainly be continuing to talk about this, a problem that we see in this province and well beyond. So thanks for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Doug King, criminology professor at Mount Royal University.